from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. Welcome, everyone, for coming. Um, This is a dream. (coughs) This really is. I can't believe it's happening. Um, I just quickly wanted to thank everyone that made this happen. This has been a huge project that we've been not getting much sleep over for quite some time now. And um, my name is Heather Long, and I'm one of the directors of The Whole Network. I also co-lead the um, the branch, the local branch of The Whole Network called Wa- um, Wish Washington Intact, Safe, and Happy. Uh, our information is out on the booth selling the food if you want any. If you want to be involved, we meet every other month at my house. Um, This is our biggest event yet. I want to thank being a part of the whole network. Um, It's been amazing what all of these people have put in to make this 30, this is a 30 city tour if you didn't know. And we're kind of reaching the end of it now. Seattle's number, what Ellie? 26 or so? So um, I want to thank Jacqueline. I just could not have done it without you. My program manager, John Geisiger. Like, I just don't know what I would have done if he didn't join Wish. Vanessa and Greta and Cassandra and Ellie for agreeing to take upon this tour. Um, it just wouldn't, and it would not happen without the audience. So we really appreciate you being here. And um, yeah, so I'll have them, I'll have Ellie explain what's going to happen tonight um, with our panel discussion and Q&As, and just thank you. So thank you all so much for coming out. My name is Ellie Unger-Sargon. I'm the filmmaker. Uh, I'm really excited to be here in Seattle. What a great city. I've never actually spent an appreciable amount of time here before yesterday, and I'm really enjoying the vibe I get from here. Uh, thanks to the whole network for helping to sponsor the tour. Thanks uh, to Heather and all of the local organizers uh, for doing a great job getting the word out. Uh, so this is the way things are going to go tonight. Uh, we're going to watch the film. It's 70 minutes long. Uh, after the film is over, we're going to have a panel discussion with myself and John Geisiker, who will be introducing himself uh, after the film. Uh, and we'll have a, a short little discussion about a number of uh, elements of this subject that uh, weren't touched on in the film and that don't get uh, enough coverage. Uh, after that, we will open it up for answer, uh, question and answers to you guys. And uh, Heather will be going around with uh, this guy. This is a wireless microphone so that the podcast audience can hear your questions. Don't try to take it from her. Just let her put it near your mouth and just talk to me and, and everything will be fine. And, you know, we won't get like people's ears getting blasted out and people talking too close, blah, 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 blah. Right? So that'll be great. Okay. Wonderful. Um, so without further ado, uh, I give you my film cut. Thank you so much for coming and we'll, we'll talk in a little bit. So thanks again so much for coming out and bearing with us here. Um, so I want to have a short conversation with John Geisiker before uh, we open up to Q&A. Um, so John, would you like to introduce yourself and Absolutely. tell the audience a little bit about how you come to this subject? Okay, let, let me tell you a little secret first. I walked out of this film twice because I couldn't handle it. I finally, this is the second time I've actually seen it from start to finish. 
and it's fabulous, but I'm sorry about the two walkouts. <laughs> I apologize. Um, I'm John Geisiger. I'm the, the executive director and also general counsel for a physician's group called Doctors Opposing Circumcision. Actually, we have civilian non-medical members and nurse members and paraprofessionals of all kinds, but, but physicians lead, the, lead the, uh, the show, and I'm very proud to work for them, I have to tell you. Um, Doctors Opposing Circumcision is based here in Seattle. And I represent thousands of physicians worldwide in many different countries who believe that no one has a right to cut healthy flesh from a healthy child without his permission. It's pretty simple. And by the way, male circumcision is not our only issue. We also get involved in unnecessary intersex surgeries uh, where the, the gender is chosen for the child without consultation. Female genital mutilation. I just came back from England with my wife doing a presentation on that issue. And other unnecessary and merely cultural surgeries to children that they don't require that are non-therapeutic. I also advise parents who are puzzled about what to do. I advise parents with botched circumcisions. I advise angry men. I advise men who are restoring. Um, I think my proudest moment was two or three years ago when I won the Bolt case. Some of you may know that that was a 14-year-old boy named Misha Bolt whose father decided he was going to convert to Judaism and he wanted his son circumcised against the son's wishes. And uh, that case went all the way to the United States Supreme Court and it was won, curiously, by the child himself. I was part of the legal team and very proud to be so, but it was one because the boy said, I don't want to be Jewish and I don't want to be circumcised. And the judge said, yeah, okay. <laughs> so that was my, the proud legal moment of a, of a legal career. But anyway, I, um, I'm very proud to be here. I, it, I think this is a wonderful, uh, a wonderful presentation. I will say that I have very little to say about the ritual aspects of this, not being Jewish. I can't make any believable or credible comments about it, Judaism, I sense from having worked on this issue for more than well, 13 years that it's far more important to Jews than I ever suspected it was. Though I would leave to Ellie whether those things are social or religious or whatever. I'm here to answer any questions people have about the medical aspects of things, uh, anatomical aspects, different clamp usage, morbidity, uh, nationwide and worldwide statistics, the kinds of things that I do all day long. Yeah. Thanks, Ellie. Yeah, um, and thanks for that introduction. Um, I, I guess what one of the things I wanted you to share with the audience um, was some of the recent uh, sorts of complaints that you've been getting, you've been dealing with. I know that you deal with uh, cases of forced retraction. Correct. Um, and if you could explain to people what that is, uh, I think this is a very little known element and aspect of this issue. If you can tell people what this is and where the problem comes from and where you fit into that, what, what sort of work you do around that. Sure, I, I can give you a very quick history of it. Let me also mention, I for, forgot to mention earlier, I'm actually a New Zealander by birth. And New Zealand is one of the most unusual countries in the world on the subject of circumcision because their rate went to over 99%, highest ever anywhere, um, perhaps with the exception of Israel. <laughs> Um, in the 1950s, and then in the early 1960s, the doctors decided to abandon it, and they went to zero in like two years. And there has been no circumcisions in New Zealand since the mid-1960s. And although there's a huge mis mismatch, obviously, between circumcised fathers and grandfathers and completely intact boys, there's never been any evidence that anybody suffered from that. In other words, the, the saw about kids not being able to, needing to look like their father apparently doesn't exist in New Zealand. And by the way, they have some of the healthiest children in the world. There's been no huge run-up of STIs or STDs or HIV. Or UTIs. Uh, in New Zealand or UTI <laughs> or any of the scare stuff that you hear of. I mean, New Zealand is kind of a perfect example of an experiment, an interesting experiment actually, that has never quite been written up about the medical 
results of circumcision or the results of non-circumcision. But to forced retraction, I'm proud to say that Psychology Today magazine has accepted an article that, uh, that I wrote with my doctor group um, about forced retraction. And let me give you a little hint of what this is. You, you will observe during the film the, uh, the woman Moyle uh, running a probe, circulating a probe around the boy's glands. She was breaking the synechia, the membrane that you, that you heard, and that's the first thing that has to be done in a circumcision. It is also, however, sometimes done by doctors and nurses who are, are unaware of the anatomy of this, of this region um, in, in, in well baby visits. And I get involved in 100 cases a year where, in which the family begs me to intervene with their medical providers and, and complain about what happened to their child. And we estimate our physicians group that, that the incidence of forced retractions, which is very painful and very destructive, at over 100,000 cases. I actually think that 100,000 is probably a, a third of what's really happening. Because if you do the numbers of all the primary care providers in the country, and you know the number of boys who are intact, and the number of instances in which parents take their child to a primary care provider during the course of, say, a two or three year period, you can see there's an awful lot of, 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 uh, of contact. What happens with uh, forced retraction is scarring, which will then become inelastic, and then the child can't pull his foreskin back. There's, there's infection that comes from it because it's, it's invariably done septically. I have not had a single case in two and a half years of doing this in which a doctor was wearing surgical gloves. Not one. They, in fact, many of the of parents report that the doctor was never even seen, or nurse was never even seen to wash their hands. So I claim, and I think it's a reasonable claim in the article, that um, the entire incidence of urinary tract infections in boys and intact boys can be simply put down to this practice. It came from the 19th century when there was a belief that it was called reflex neurosis. The notion was if you touch the sensitive part of your body, it would cause a disease to appear spontaneously elsewhere. It, the, the neurosis was the teasing of the tissue, the reflex was the resulting disease. And so in the 1860s, as you heard Dr. Lenglick refer to, there was a theory that disease came from touching the genitalia. And uh, an, an adjunct theory, a follow-on theory, was that smegma, the natural emollient that both genders produce, causes itching and that would draw the child's attention to his or her genitalia. They would touch themselves and get tuberculosis or polio or hip dysplasia, insanity, hair loss, uh, blindness. Uh, some of these things actually, uh, uh, many of you will know, exist today as locker room jokes. You know, the, the standard locker room joke is, can I just do it till I need glasses? Um, <laughs> so, but it's, it's a genuine injury. It's a genuine error in American medicine. It is uh, now 150 years old. And I, and I see cases of it constantly. Parents who are, who are taught to retract their child, they hate doing it, it's painful. They know the child's gonna scream. The mother doesn't wanna do it. And I tell parents, my favorite parents are the parents who practice what I call benign neglect. They just leave their child alone to develop normally. And one of my favorite medical historians, a guy named Rob Darby in Canberra, Australia, says that to, it, it's an error equivalent to saying that baby girls need to have their hymen cut open so they can be douched to clean their vagina. It's exactly the same medical theory. And actually, that theory did have a little, in the 18, late 1860s and 70s, that theory had a slight ascendancy and disappeared quickly. I'd like to I'd like to add a little perspective to this and get your thoughts on what I'm about to say also of course um, but what what I'm thinking is that there are two components to this there's the component of 
the foreskin having a history in our culture of being looked upon as a problem and a source of problems. A source of disease, for a sure. A source of disease. And moral, moral failure. Right. And, of course, in the uh, early parts of the 20th century, the, the distinction between physical disease and moral disease was not as clear as it is today. Um, so that's one part of this. And the second part is, and, and we were talking about this last night, Heather and I, um, that um, you often hear situations, uh, stories with forced retractions where the parent brings the kid into the practice and before they know what's happened, it's very quick. The diaper's open, boom, it's retracted. And, and you were mentioning that there are no gloves. And what that says to me as an observer is that there's some psychological thing going on here where the, the practitioner is looking at the intact penis and it's, it's not normal. And there's like a there's almost a desire to make it to see the normal penis to make it look normal and so boom the first thing they do it's just like an almost instinctual ret forcibly retract it so you can see the glands and so that it can look like a normal penis and stop making you uncomfortable that's and what, I think that's what parents report to yeah me. and I think that these two things that the seeing the foreskin as as pathological and as the source of, of pathology and this desire this sort of deeply ingrained cultural desire to see a normal penis is what's going on here. I've, yeah, I had an article published in an Australian magazine about four years ago now in, in which I make the comment that I think one of the things that happens is it's, it's actually a novelty to many doctors. They haven't seen an intact penis lately and they want to goof with it, explore it, and they definitely want it to look like a circumcised penis. They want to see that glands. There's, an imp there's a psychosexual compulsive need to see the glands. Yeah, and, and I, I think... If anyone's listening who has, um, uh, whether they're in the audience here or listening on the podcast, if, they, if you have an intact boy, it's very, very simple. Leave the penis alone. Never forcibly retract. Um, don't even use soap to yeah. clean it. Um, never leave your child's si side during a well-baby visit. Um, I'm a little naive, and I guess all my friends have been saying, you need to pull the foreskin back in order to clean it. Crosses garlic. You don't need to do anything whatsoever. So is that whatsoever. what you're talking about? Forced retraction? Yeah, that's is right. That what Leave that means? it alone. So that's different than circumcision. It is very different from circumcision. Forced retraction is basically, um, when a, as you saw in the film, when an infant boy is born um, and his genitals are unaltered, um, the foreskin is actually fused to the glands of the penis. Okay. And it takes many years for these structures to separate naturally, sometimes well into puberty. And for a long time, it was believed that you had to forcibly pull it back to clean under People there. People still think that. Yeah. I know That's why I'm trying to bring your attention to the fact that um, we know this absolutely now. This is scientific medical facts that we're talking about here. Do not retract your son's foreskin. He will retract it when he's darn well ready to retract it. And if you do it before then, you are putting him at risk for infection enormous amounts of pain and possibly bleeding. And even adult sexual problems. The average age, according to all the studies I have read, these are foreign studies, not U.S. studies, the average age for normal, natural, non-traumatic uh, retraction is 10. And if your child at 10 still isn't retractable, he's still in the other 50 percentile, but he's not behind, you know, he's not, there's not something wrong there. It may take him to 17 or longer before he's fully retractable. So I heard you say no soap, but then I think I've heard people say, after urinate, it can get, it, it stays sequestered in there and it needs to be cleaned. Urine is sterile and the, the boy's penis is essentially is being washed by the best possible substance several times a day. 
then my other question was for you. Why did you walk out twice I during the film? <laughs> what, what about I it just, was so oh, disturbing I find, you? know, for I've you. been doing this work for a very long time, and you would think I would become sort of habituated to seeing circumcision videos. And oh, really, they, they, they hurt. They just hurt. <laughs> okay. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry about that. I mean, I'm admitting my human frailties here. And I, so I, as a lawyer, I should probably be a little bit more distant from my <laughs> subject. My last question is just um, as just a regular part of my community and having um, going to prenatal classes and being around a lot of women who are trying to make this decision with their partners um, and getting a lot of feedback uh, that obviously is misinformed, where would I tell people to go? Um, to get information that's current so that it doesn't just seem like my opinion, but it's something that, Absolutely. that I can just send them to to go and inform themselves. Yeah, well, there, there, are a lot of, yeah, yeah, there are a lot of really good websites. out. First of all, my website is www.cutthefilm.com, and I have links on, on my website to a lot of other websites. There's the Whole Network, which is a... Thewholenetwork.org, and they ha we have... Whole is in WHOLE.org. We're a grassroots organization, and we have an extensive library for anything you're looking for. Any question on circumcision, There's, intact care, yeah. uh, damage done by circumcision. There's also the circumcision information resource pages, um, CIRP.org. Um, and in any event, if you go to my website, there are links to lots of other websites, but mm -hmm. there's some really, really good websites out there. The whole network is definitely a fantastic resource. And um, send them to my website, show them my film. You know, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And um, so it's a battle to get people it to is. know, you know, right. to know not to do this and not to forcibly retract intact boys, sure. I need to plug Doctors Opposing Circumcision. Yes. And an allied organization that I was on the formation board of, and that's Intact America, based in New York. They've been doing marvelous work, but because they had some very decent funding. The rest of us are sort of struggling. All right, Thank let's you. take another question, please. I have two questions. One, in doing my research on circumcision, I found that ancient Jews used to circumcise differently than we do now and I wondered if you had any thoughts on that if you found anything about that in your research and secondly why didn't you include the death toll for boys who are circumcised when they die under the knife sure um, so regarding the ancient Hebrew practice of circumcision it's true that it was different um, it was a less radical surgery much closer to the way Muslims circumcise today. Um, so the idea was they took off uh, the prepuce that was distal to the, the head of the penis. Um, so it wasn't the radical form of circumcision, Jewish circumcision you see today, or the radical form of American circumcision, which was adapted from Jewish circumcision. Um, that happened, the change happened uh, in the Hellenic period when... Um, you know, Jewish men were sort of enamored with Greek culture and wanting to participate fully. And one of the things that you did in Greek culture was you participated in the Olympics. But to participate in the Olympics, you couldn't have your glands showing. That was considered vulgar. It was done in the nude, of course. But the idea of having your glands showing was considered rude. So men were tying their foreskins off and restoring them. And when you only cut off um, the, dist the part that's distal from the glands, um, you're going to, uh, it's, it's going to be a much easier thing to do to restore. The rabbis got wind that they were doing this, and they instituted a more radical form of circumcision that we find the Jews have been practicing since then until today. Uh, and that involves a practice called priya, where it's not only taking off um, that distal part of the foreskin, but it's 
sort of completely ablating the foreskin and making it virtually impossible or very, very difficult to restore. Um, so that's the history. Uh, even the ancient form of Jewish circumcision, though, got rid of what we now know as the ridged band. So, I mean, it's, you know, six and one half a dozen of the other, but it was definitely a less radical procedure. And, and um, the current kind of circumcision that we have today makes it much, much harder to do any kind of restoration work. It's a much more difficult, extensive process. Um, why didn't I involve anything about the death tolls? You might also ask me why I didn't involve anything about any kind of complication in the film. I don't touch on that. And the reason is very simple. It's a rhetorical reason. Um, it's just so easy to dismiss that. Um, I show this film to people, I oftentimes show this film to people who I know are not going to agree with me about circumcision. And I'm constantly in a, a sort of dynamic uh, back and forth with my own community and with people. I, I find it, it, it's typically when I'm talking to Jews that I, I run into this more than sort of Gentiles who usually watch my film and say, well, we're kind of chumps. Why are we doing this? Um, but um, in in that context, in that setting, when you're having a debate, what, what amounts to a debate about circumcision, um, I find that the complication question, while important, is a bit of a distraction because it's very easy to dismiss and say, well, you know, all medical procedures are all sorts, everything has risks, and there's always going to be some tiny percentage that's going to have a problem, and so that's not, but the central ethical problem, as far as I'm concerned, while that is a is a concern, and the, the death toll and the, circum, and the complication rate of circumcision is, is important to bring to people's attention, and of course it's it's um, part of any kind of informed consent, even today in hospitals where circumcisions are being performed. It's not the central ethical problem in my mind. The central ethical problem is that even if you're doing this with no further complications whatsoever, you're permanently altering an individual's sexual experience for the rest of their life. Um, and so that's the central, that's the centerpiece of my ethical uh, uh, case against this practice. And anything that distracts from that, um, I find uh, unhelpful in getting to the root of the problem here. So that's sort of why I didn't. Could I add something to that? Yeah, though? sure. Uh, two things. Um, I write a little in bioethics, and I have to tell you that if you can imagine a sort of scale, if a procedure is extremely necessary but also has a high risk, that's justifiable. If you need a heart transplant, everyone knows a heart transplant is a difficult and dangerous surgery. But if you don't have it, you're in deep trouble. The trouble with surgeries that have absolutely no therapeutic value is, in a sense, the scale of, of, of uh, what would you call it, a, a failure to tolerate complications goes massively up. I mean, theoretically, in bioethics, if, if a surgical procedure has no value to the patient, it can never have a complication of any kind, by definition. Yeah. Does, does that make sense to you? Now, let me tell you a second thing. We do not actually know the mortality and the morbidity rate of circumcision in the United States, whether in the ritual setting or in a hospital setting, for several good reasons. The deaths for circumcision are often described to another thing. It'll say exsanguination, doesn't say circumcision. It might say heart attack, doesn't say circumcision. It might say bowel obstruction due to whatever, doesn't say circumcision. So we don't know about the deaths for circumcision. It's highly speculative. A lot of circumcisions go on in an outpatient settings in which there's absolutely no mandatory requirement by in any U.S. state or any U.S. medical society to keep stats on kids who are botched. Doctors who do the repairs, urologists, are not obliged to report the botch back 
or report their colleague who did the botch. So we simply don't know. And there's a third class, and it's growing and slightly scary, and that's home circumcisions, especially by fundamentalist Christians who've been reading too much Old Testament and not enough New Testament, who are doing this stuff with tools at hand. And they don't realize that if you cut a child, he may very well bleed to death. Most circumcision methods use some method of hemostasis, that is to stop bleeding. And the clamp that you saw, that Morgan clamp, I have one in my pocket, is not actually a cutting device, it's a crushing device. It crushes the foreskin so that the capillaries aren't at the surface where they can bleed rapidly. So what parents don't know who are doing circumcisions in bathtubs with hunting knives, uh, that's Vancouver, Washington, there was one in Vancouver, BC recently. There was one in Portland just a few months ago. Um, people don't realize the, the risk they're putting their child in. And I will tell you, it's not illegal to do that if the child, if you don't call 911. In other words, if you need to call 911, you have brought yourself to the attention of the attorneys. If you get away with it, it's not illegal. There's not a single state in the U.S. or province in Canada where circumcision needs to be performed by somebody who's medically trained. And of course, that applies to Mohels as well. It does. Who are a class of people who, are, I mean, it's a, it's a profession that's completely unregulated by any body, religious or secular. Correct. Um, so that's, that's these are very important things to mention. Again, coming back to the point I was making before, I, I, fi I, I find them important to discuss. I find that people are often shocked when I tell them, you know, how many complications per year we see of this in the United States. Uh, the statistics on this are also sort of um, leave something to be desired because of what John was saying and how hospitals don't really report them properly. But my estimate is that um, a, a low ball figure for uh, the percentage of complications, significant complications is about 2%. Um, if you think about 1.3 million circumcisions that occurred this year in the United States, we're talking tens of thousands of of, uh, of complications, some of them very serious, buried penis, degloving, you know, uh, partial glands am amputations. I spoke uh, when I was in Atlanta with uh, David Llewellyn, who's a genital injury uh, attorney whose entire practice of law is built around genital injury cases, and he, he told me some horror stories yeah. about what some of the cases that he brings. And he actually, uh, speaking of the Mogan clamp, he uh, recently won a case in which he basically sued the company that made the Mogan instruments into oblivion. Um, and uh, yeah, so, but, and the complications and the deaths. Um, so that, that's the other thing about it that's hard to talk about. Um, we don't have reliable, hard data. People have tried estimates, people try to talk, but you know, all we know is sort of the, the cases that come to light. Well, not the gilded lily, but I, I quibble with your 2%, because I have to tell you, a lot of circumcisions are done by 26 year old R1s, first year residents. This is the very first surgery they have ever done. And I have to tell you, my, my standard line is that a lot of American men are walking around with the beta genitalia of a 26-year-old's first experiment, working on a micro, a micro uh, structure using macro techniques. Yeah, no, and, and again, our, our data on this point is, is very difficult to come by. And when you hear someone, even when you hear someone like me say something like 2%, you should be suspicious because I mean, that's just based on guesstimations. That's really not hard data. So all of these reasons are why I don't deal with it in the film. Um, and I focus on the central ethical issue, which is, as far as I'm concerned, the lifelong consequence, permanent alteration of sexual experience of an individual. Let's, wow. take, let's take another question. We really tortured that poor lady with that long answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, first of all, I wanted to say 
thank you for standing up on on this issue. It's, I realize it's it's kind of a scary one out there. Uh, there's a lot of pushback here in the U.S. about it. Um, but second, I, I just want to make a comment about the fact that you said that it's not illegal. Well, if you were to stab your child in the arm, it would be illegal. So right. it's just that no lawyer is wanting to stand up and take that to court. Well, it's it's that the law is 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 a as a child of culture and a lagging indicator of culture and the law has never really taken into consideration for cultural reasons these injuries to children and unregulated medicine happening in people's bathtubs it just you know until it's overwhelmingly something that Americans are horrified by nothing will happen um, regarding it not being regulated I didn't know moils weren't regulated that was kind of a shock for me um, you didn't know they were unregulated. That's what I meant. Sorry, right. I'm really tired. Um, isn't it somewhat quietly recognized that in, in Judaism, if you've lost one or more sons, several sons to circumcision, you're not obligated to do it again? I could swear I read that somewhere. So right. There's a Talmudic passage in, I think it's Tractate Yevamot, if I'm not mistaken. Um, that's, and this is, I mean, the Talmud was redacted back in like the 6th century or so. Uh, and it says that if a woman, there's a dispute actually, uh, whether um, a woman has to have lost two or three babies to not circumcise the next one. Um, what that is, is not an admission of, um, <laughs> you know, a problem. It's that they, they recognize, pro some people think that they were aware of uh, the phenomenon of hemophilia, and that was the only way that they had of recognizing it at the time. Um, but no, I, I, I mean... I should say yes. If the baby is a hemophiliac and we now have ways of testing for that, we have genetic tests for hemophilia, um, then circumcision is actually forbidden by Jewish law. Um, and yeah, there is that Talmudic passage. I, I, I mean, I, what I should say is that all of the rabbis that I've spoken to about this are extremely lenient when it comes to any kind of health issue. So if a baby is born jaundiced, which happens quite a lot, um, the, the circumcision is postponed until the baby is deemed healthy enough to, to be able to take it. Um, and if there's any kind of um, serious uh, health thought that, that, that the baby might die as a result of this, the rabbis are extremely lenient and they leave them alone. It's, it doesn't have to be done. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that is the case. So I, I'm really naive about Judaism as well. <laughs> and we have some friends who are getting their sons circumcised, and they're Jewish. And I asked them why, and they didn't know why. They just knew that that's what they're supposed to do. So you can answer that if you want to. I, I guess it doesn't, I'm not, it's curious to me why. But the other, the bigger question I have is how come our society, do you know, has adopted it so wholeheartedly? I mean, how did it morph from just a Jewish tradition into our societal um, brainwashing. There are good books on the subject for a start if you're really interested. There's, a, there's the History of Circumcision by David Gallagher, which I highly recommend. The book you saw in the film, Marked in Your Flesh, if you're interested in the Jewish tradition, is absolutely the best. It's a fantastic book. And there are several others that, that detail it. But the American history is that we were an immigrant country. Intact boys were coming to from Europe to the United States, living in tenements and getting tuberculosis. And so there was a sense that because children were not circumcised, that these Europeans were not as clean as Americans. So it had a very strong cleanliness aspect. And uh, coupled with a very strong moral aspect, you know, that, that, that it was immoral to touch your genitals. And that if you caused yourself disease because of that, clearly you were both a moral failure as well as an epidemiological failure. You see what I mean? And when you, and we, and when you talk about a country as prudish as the U.S., you can see we were a very fertile soil for that. 
And added to which there's one more factor and that is we're a multi-payer nation. So there's no single entity. We're also a 50 nation medical society country. I mean, you may not realize it, but there's almost no federal regulation of medicine that's meaningful at the local level. I mean, obviously at the hospital levels and protocols and so forth, there's some, and there's FDA. Mm -hmm. But basically every state has the right to regulate medicine the way they do. And so getting them all to operate collectively would be almost impossible. And we have hundreds and hundreds, thousands of insurance companies, all of whom have different paying processes. So there's no single agency that's really empowered in the U.S. to put, put the brakes on circumcision. And it's not going to happen. I'd add to that that um, there was a strong sexual thing going on. Um, there was a sense that, um, and we touched on this in the film too, but there was a sense that, the for, and again, things are different in our culture now, but back then there was no question in anyone's mind that the foreskin was an extremely pleasurable part of the penis. Um, and dangerous. Right. <laughs> but, um, but the idea of uh, sort of immobilizing the penis, making it more difficult for boys to masturbate, and that that would improve them morally. Again, we were talking about how they had a blurring of the distinction between, you know, moral health and physical health. Um, so the idea of sort of helping the boy by, you know, immobilizing that, you know, dirty part that would, you know, sort of give him sexual pleasure and distract him from the important things in life, that was a big part of it, too. Yeah, it's the Protestant work, work ethic in the genitalia. <laughs> how did like. it come to New Zealand in the 50s or 60s? So uh, because it's part of English language medicine. Every, all of the English language countries, Canada, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, England, and, and colonies of English people like South yeah. Africa. It was a Victorian fad. Yeah, it was a, yeah. it was a Victorian fad. It was a British fad, actually. And actually, in the early 19th century, we were getting too deep here, it was a French fad. Then it became, they said, this is stupid. They gave it to the Brits who ran with it. And, and of course, in places like Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, British medicine had a huge influence for many, many years. They were the, the best medical schools, the best medical texts, the best medical training. So they had, a, they had a huge advantage. It just never caught on with Europeans. They thought it was dumb. Well, I continental mean, Europeans. Continental Europeans, yeah, exactly. Obviously, yeah, Muslim Europeans and Jewish Muslims. And, Bri and the Brits. And the Brits, you're right, exactly. Um, next question. By the way, Britain, Britain gave up in 1949. Um, Australia and uh, Australia is down to something like 11%. Canada is below that. So we are the lagging English language country, essentially. Uh, if you ever make do a redo, cuts that continued, whatever, uh, I got a couple suggestions or, or questions as well. Uh, what about the Muslims? Because I heard or I understand that, in fact, you alluded to that Muslims have a partial circumcision. Uh, I'm still not clear what that is. It would, uh, if you were to do re redo it, I'd love to have that as part of the, the film, talking about how they do it. And uh, some of this, when the guy, when your father, whoever it was, was talking about reasons why, as far as religion and culture, why it's so important to have the the circumcision, I'd love for you to suddenly show the young girl in there that he's talking about because it's the same, exactly the same things that they talk about, female circumcision, uh, exactly the same reasons, and I'd love to see you blur that, showing that it's, you know, it's the same reasons, so I'm like, what difference does it make? Who you're just doing it to? Um, well, I'm not redoing the film <laughs> anytime soon, um, but uh, even if I were to do some sort of follow-up, which I don't think is likely, um, I'm not... I don't feel comfortable talking about uh, Muslim circumcision. I don't feel comfortable talking about African circumcision. Um, I think 
I belong to the Jewish community. I belong to the American community. And I feel very comfortable talking to and criticizing members of my own community. Um, I also think that circumcision and, well, I should say genital cutting practices is a much larger subject than the subject I chose to focus on in this film. And I think that when you get too broad, I think I was already even pushing it in my film a little bit with how broad I was going. But um, you, you sort of lose focus and then a film sort of gets to be a sprawling mess. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there is a larger subject. There are lots of things that, that, that people ought to talk about. But me as a Jewish American, um, I feel comfortable talking to my communities and I feel comfortable supporting members of other communities who want to talk to their own communities. But I don't feel comfortable as a Jewish American uh, criticizing um, Muslim circumcision, criticizing, um, you know, African circumcision. That's just not... Uh, I, I feel that's culturally insensitive. Um, and, uh, yeah, just on the, the detailed point that you asked about Muslim circumcision, um, it's a little different than Jewish circumcision. Muslim circumcision typically occurs sometime during childhood, not in infancy. Uh, so that's a difference right there. And and the extent of the damage done in, Mus in Muslim circumcision is typically less, like I said, closer to the original Hebrew practice where it's sort of taking off um, the foreskin distal to the glands, there's variability here. There's also variability at the age. Different Muslim cultures circumcise at different ages. Um, but, yeah, I think it's a different... Uh, it, it's different both in the degree of damage and it, in the age at which it's done. I'd, I'd agree. It's a very encyclopedic subject you're opening up because you've got circumcision all around the world by all different cultures. Australian Aboriginals, Malays, Indonesians... Africans that are very highly in there in the in the damage done, the method, whether anesthesia is used, not, et cetera. Next question, please. My name's Michelle, and I want you to know that I'm a nurse, and the reason um, I'm so interested in this is as a student nurse, I had to assist with one, and when I saw it, I was just appalled and said to the doctor, "I will never do this to my son," because <laughs> I just thought it was barbaric. But more than a question, I just want to make a comment on, L.A., how courageous I think you were to make this film um, because you had a strong family history that um, did not lend itself to support you in this. And your last statement just brought tears to my eyes. So thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you so much. Hello. I want to thank you again for coming to Seattle. Thank the Grand Illusion for hosting you. Um, and I had a question related to the... Uh, that I studied here a lot about the the connection between HIV and circumcision. Mm -hmm. I think it was done in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so I've I've heard of the the study and I've heard bits of criticism here and there. But I was hoping you could elaborate on it and um, say if it um, say if it's not relevant to the U.S. as it shouldn't be used as an ar or as an argument to why people should get circumcised in the U.S. Um, why not? So just kind of expand on the criticism, please. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> Um, and John, I'm sure you'll fill in if I, I make have, any I mistakes. Have some on the um, <laughs> so what happened was in 2006 there were three uh, randomized control trials done in Sub-Saharan Africa on this subject. Uh, it was Uganda, South Africa, and Kenya. Right. Those are the I three. Um, and what they did was, uh, I mean, <laughs> from the beginning there are problems here, right? never would have passed an ethical board in the United States, but they took two groups of African men and they, you know, one group they circumcised uh, and said, you know, 
go and have sex with your wives. And the other group, they didn't circumcise and they said, go and have sex with your wives. And they, they did give counseling for safe sex practices to both groups. And then these two groups went out and they said, let's figure out who gets AIDS faster. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's just, it's, it's an atrocious, atrocious uh, ethical violation if you think about what they did, what they actually did. And they did this with um, quite a large uh, number of men. And what they claimed to have found was that um, in the circumcised men, the circumcised men had a sort of 60% uh, lower risk of acquiring HIV, heterosexual HIV from female to male. Uh, and then they published these studies and then it just became this push to circumcise everyone in Africa um, and to this day, they're, they're trying to circumcise millions and millions of Africans. Um, and there are many, many, many problems with this. Um, uh, it's also, of course, as you mentioned, being used to try and just sort of justify a reinvigoration of the practice in the United States and other English-speaking countries in the world, um, to which most rational, sane human beings sort of go, huh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, but let me just go through a few of the, the problems. Um, uh, number one, there are some serious methodological flaws that they were just not able to control for um, or that they didn't control for properly. So one of the most obvious things is simply that uh, the circumcised group uh, had a six-week uh, period of time where they were supposed to wait for their circumcision wounds to heal and they were told that they can't have sex during that time. But they started the clock at the beginning. So basically, just like right off the bat, <laughs> you have like this glaring methodological flaw where, you know, they have an like they have a six week advantage, you know, just just off the bat. Um, there are other methodological flaws. Um, you know, the circumcised group came in more times um, and got more uh, sort of safe sex counseling and they stopped the the, the trials early. So the follow-up was completely lost because when they stopped the trials, they, they then just took the control group and circumcised them too. So we don't know what would have happened if you actually looked at it over a longer period. We do know, and the researchers have been forced to admit this much to their chagrin, that the wives of the circumcised groups ended up having higher levels of HIV infection. And we know that men in Africa now have this false belief that if they're circumcised, they can't get AIDS. And so it's actually increasing unsafe sexual practices there. I would raise your attention also to another data point that almost never gets discussed, which is that there is some evidence that has emerged from Africa that uh, women who are gen who've had genital alterations are at lower risk of getting HIV. I'm familiar with four studies uh, that people are very embarrassed about that demonstrate this, the researchers are kind of like, well, what are we supposed to do? This is the data. And, you know, I don't want to, we probably shouldn't publicize this too widely because we don't want to encourage that genital cutting practice, which brings me to the point of um, the absurdity and the, uh, the arrogant imperialism of going to Africa to promote our genital cutting practice, male genital cutting, and sort of, sort of blanketly condemn at the same time African female genital cutting practices, which is just like the height of imperialist arrogance. Um, and uh, the final point I want to mention, and this is actually the most important thing, is that the ethics of a, a man choosing to do this to himself as an adult because he thinks it might convey some kind of protection against sexually transmitted diseases, against HIV, and the ethics of doing this to an infant who does not have the ability to think, let alone consent, 
are worlds apart. And so any sane, rational person looking at these studies and hearing this sort of bizarre cultural push to sort of try to rope these studies in as a rationale for continuing infant genital cutting practices would have to say um, there's an obvious difference here. And so whether or not you accept their data, it's irrelevant to the central ethical problem of cutting uh, infant boys, which is you are making a permanent alteration on their body and on their future sexual experience that they did not consent to. I'd add this. The, the problem of HIV in the U.S. is usually is, quite frankly, a problem of MSM, men having sex with men, and illegal IV drug use. And so I say to parents who say, geez, you know, I'm thinking about circumcising my son to protect him from HIV, and I say, are you going to tell me that you're going to look down at your two-day-old child and say, yep, no doubt about it, look at those squinty eyes. He's going to be a drug addict who has unprotected sex with other men. I mean, if, you, if that's how you view your two-day-old child, I don't think I can help you. Could I also add to that study, which is not evidence, but we had George W. Bush, who was the ABC, abstinence before condoms, didn't want to use condoms, and we had a huge push from him to send money for AIDS in Africa. So I, I can't help but to believe that they didn't want to use condoms, they wanted to fight AIDS, circumcise the guys. Well, there was a religious push to keep the condoms down, quite frankly, from you know one of your larger religions. So uh, that figured in it, and that and fundamentalist Christians who kind of supported that notion. I, I'd like to add a speculative point here, and I want to be 100% clear that I'm being totally speculative on this point. I have no data to support this. It's just based on what I know about circumcision. I think circumcised men are much less likely to use condoms than intact men for the simple reason that when you don't have a lot of sensation to begin with and you're putting a bag on it, um, you're basically reducing your experience of sensation from the penis to pressure and you know, maybe a tiny little bit of sensation. So I honestly think that circumcision might discourage condom use. But again, total spec rank speculation. I have no evidence well, for that. Well, that's already been seen, actually. Is there is there data that I'm unaware of that no, there, supports that? There are medical officers who are concerned that boys are lining up for circumcisions in sub-Saharan countries for exactly the wrong reasons and happily admit it, happily say so. Yeah. You know, it's just kind of a one-time condom. It's a condom you only have to buy once. Yeah. Um, what about the rates of HIV of America versus the UK? I mean, don't we have triple the HIV rate? I mean, they don't circumcise in Britain. Like, isn't that? I try to tell people all the time. I'm like, Look, it doesn't. We're higher. I don't know if it's triple. I, I really believe I looked know. online the other day. I, I like to try to. Back we we have <laughs> the highest HIV rate That's in the post-industrialized world. Um, we do, and we do, but I mean, it's important also to note that from a purely scientific perspective, that's not entirely convincing. Mm -hmm. uh, an RCT carries a lot, a randomized control trial carries a lot more weight to someone who's sensitive to scientific data than to large population-based data. Having said that, it's really important if you're looking at this as a public health measure mm -hmm. exactly. to see the countries in which circumcision is a mainstream practice take a look at how it's like what Lauman said in the film right we've you know we've we've seen this movie right mm -hmm. San Francisco um, you know had this situation where half the gay men in San Francisco acquired HIV for a certain period of time and some and like 85% of them were circumcised yeah. so 
He said, if it's any, if there is any prophylaxis, it's sure as hell not much of one. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I think that's very well put. Um, and so, yeah, on as a from a public health perspective, I think it's clear that the the experiment has been done and it's failed. Yeah. Um, if you're looking at it from an, the the risk to an individual, that's where the RCTs come in. And I'm very skeptical of that data. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you know, even if if you accept the data, the ethical problems that I mentioned before still exist. Two, two additional points, if you don't mind my making it. There were Tuskegee violations in the RCTs. There were men who were sent home not told that they were HIV positive. That's redolent of that study in the 1930s that was run out of Tuskegee and approved, by the way, by the CDC, that sent black males home who, were, who had syphilis to see what would happen. And that stands as one of the largest ethical violations of bioethics ever in, in medicine. And honest to God, the RCTs in Africa virtually replicated that. So, I mean, uh, I, I just find that simply appalling, but they managed to get away with it. No, but it's, it's African, so you can do whatever you want. <laughs> That's been said, actually. Uh, just wondering what your plans are to pub- continue to publicize and distribute the film. Well, this 30-city tour has been quite a whirlwind. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and, a, and a cash drainer, I'm assuming. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm very grateful to the whole network for making it possible. Um, I uh, There's been a lot of press around it, which I think is great. Um, I think I'm immune to some of the easier criticisms that other people who are against this practice suffer from. Um, the most they can say about me is that I'm a self-hating Jew. <laughs> they can't really call me an anti-Semite. And uh, to be honest, um, I've... I've been very impressed with the Jewish community's reaction to it. I mean, once <laughs> once I uh, sort of accept all of the people who just ignore me, which is a lot of people, because they find it just easier to ignore or to put up a wall or to just sort of not let me show the film or not let me advertise the film or whatever. But the people who were willing to engage, and there are quite a few, we just had a huge screening in, at a Jewish community center in Boulder. We had 140 people show up to that screening. Uh, a good third of the audience at least were Jewish. Um, And I think that um, because of the way I made the film, and I'm very proud of this actually, um, I'm not ramming a message down someone's throat. And I don't see, that's not my style as an artist either. Um, I'm trying to create a, a safe space for people of different perspectives to engage on this subject at a high level. That's my purpose. Um, and the Jewish community has been receptive to that. Um, they, 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 they sense that I'm respectful. Um, you know, I'm always open to doing screenings and um, showing it wherever people want to see it. Um, you know, so if someone wants to bring me back to Seattle, I'll be happy to come back here if you can figure out a way to get me out here. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, and I speak out about this publicly and, you know, wherever I belong you know i we my wife and i recently moved to los angeles and we're members of the jewish community there and everyone knows about <laughs> what i do um i'm oh, here comes <laughs> i'm the penis guy um but yeah i'm happy to to continue talking about this and i i, I surely will this podcast has been sort of my central creative endeavor for the last two months we have more than 30 episodes now including some special episodes interviews with experts on different elements of it and uh, i think it's a good resource um so yeah i hope to i mean i hope to have kids someday and uh it's probably going to come up then too
Somehow I think your sons will be safe. <laughs> Damn well better be. <laughs> I had a question about the tools used. I heard that they were grandfathered in, so if they were to be introduced today, that they actually wouldn't pass for being medically sound? They wouldn't be okay tools to, to use? Can you speak to that? You know, I can't speak to how, what, the, what the FDA's standard would be today. I mean, I, I guess I can say pretty clearly that if somebody invented circumcision today, it, it wouldn't go anywhere. I mean, it, 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 all it has right now is momentum. Um, and the clamps, yeah, the, most of the clamps existed prior to the, the beginnings of the FDA in the 1930s. So I, I don't think that, I think they just brought them in. I don't think there's ever been any studies. There are a lot of FDA warnings on various clamps. What happens with these clamps is they get worn and they don't crush anymore. Instead, they just bruise. And then when you pull the clamp off, the child begins to bleed. Morgan's actually famous for that. And the same with Gomco. I mean, I represented a child who was badly injured by a Gomco because the bell was warped. And, and it had never, they had never sent it to an instrument, a surgical instrument repairer. And that was part of the evidence in the case. So yeah, they, and they, they, or there's mismatched parts. The doctor, the, the, the medical professionals throw it all in the drawer, not realizing that each plate and bell and, and a lever are mated for that particular device. And if you blend them and mix them up, you can cause horrible injuries. So the FDA is warned about all that, but it hasn't really made a heck of a lot of difference. So then what sort of rules or guidelines are in place to help protect children who are being circumcised? Um, and when I ask that, I'm also speaking of children who um, maybe they are, um, their health is compromised in some way, yet their doctor is permitting the circumcision to continue. Well, I mean, I, I was involved in the circumcision of a child who was dying of Zellweger's syndrome, which is a, a liver disorder, a liver enzyme disorder here in, in Washington, and I, I screamed and yelled about it, but it turns out that the standards for how, how healthy a child is are pretty loose. They vary from hospital to hospital, from state to state. The protocols, it, this is the one surgery that has almost no exacting protocols. The, the end result is you need to see the glands. It doesn't matter what other damage you do. If the child doesn't bleed to death, if he survives, and if you can see his glands, that's a 100% successful circumcision. And I'd like to just add to that. Um, John and I were talking yesterday um, about the peculiar legal situation that lawyers who deal with this find themselves in where um, they know actually as a scientific fact that the glands is not really, if you, if you partially amputate the glands, of course it's a horrible thing, but that's not actually as damaging objectively as taking off the foreskin. Right, because the glands doesn't have the same kind of sensation. It's, it's largely decorative, frankly, as the foreskin. And yet, if you're trying to win a case in this culture, especially a juried case, you need to demonstrate to the jury that there was injury done to the glands. Otherwise, they won't uh, award you any kind of damages. And that's such uh, a that's that's a really interesting and compelling indication of just how deeply embedded and misinformed members of our culture are, and our culture is about the proper functioning of of, of the natural penis. Um, that the foreskin is, you know, the candy, not the wrapper, right? Um, and that that's, that's the most sensitive part. And so the circumcision itself is, is taking away the most sensitive part. Yet culturally, and for aesthetic and cosmetic reasons, we believe that the, 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 the biggest kind of damage is if there's some kind of damage done to the glands. But in actual fact, that's not, that's not the case. Yeah, juries will award for the fact that the poor lad has to look at his 
damaged glands three times for the rest of his life. They'll react to that. But his sexual sensation is not as impressive. One more question, I guess. I totally remember something really quick. I was reading a Facebook discussion maybe about a year ago, and it was a bunch of Jewish people discussing circumcision, and they were all pro-circumcision. Someone had linked me to it. It was pretty scary. They were saying something about, I had never heard this before, God put the foreskin there so that Jews could assist him in perfecting creation. Mm-hmm. Have you, and you've heard that before? Because I hadn't heard that before. Until sure, that that's a big, um, I mean, it's a, it's a, there's a very interesting discussion in the Talmud between a Roman emperor and a, and a Talmudic rabbi about this. And the Roman emperor sort of taunts him and says, well, if God is so perfect, you know, why do you have to, why do you have to damage his perfect creation if he's made, you know, um, why would he have made a mistake? It's basically the same idea. And the, the response is, well, you know, God made wheat, but we like bread better. Um, and so the idea is that um, that human involvement, and actually I think this is kind of a, I, I, you know, I, I'm not in favor of circumcision, of course, but I think the idea is a nice idea, is that uh, human involvement in the creation is a key thing. Um, in Judaism, we have a concept of tikkun olam, that you need, that, that the world needs people, not just God. People have to be actively involved in improving the world. So uh, that logic, unfortunately, is extended to this practice. Um, but yeah, that's definitely. Really you know, like, I mean, I'm a Christian and I believe in free will for everybody. You know, I think that's hugely important. And I do agree with, you know, doing good things and helping improve the world. But to me, I just I, I just found it so like an arrogant excuse almost to like make mm. circumcision sound better i don't know it just it really like explaining yeah it or, no i wouldn't I look know. at it that way that's how i, I felt that's yeah what I'm saying. no that's that's, yeah, that's you know, how it the, felt. those are your feelings but yeah. i i wouldn't that's not how that's not where that's coming from oh, I'm sure. that's not the motivation yeah. um it's not a sort of uh it's definitely not coming from a place of arrogance it's yeah. coming from a place of a feeling of deep responsibility mm-hmm. to improving the world which is a part of the jewish tradition that i very much relate to and i think my film is trying to 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 live up to um and it's not um it's not coming from a place of excuse i mean i suppose you could say that any kind of explanation for circumcision is just an excuse to perpetuate the practice but it's not really coming from that it's coming from this genuine uh sense that human involvement in the world and you know in this instance it would be in an quote unquote improving the body or perfecting the body or taking away part of the body that shouldn't be there in the Jewish body plan is that that's that's kind of where it's coming from yeah all right thanks so much everyone thank you John that's our show if you have any questions comments or suggestions please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com and if you like what you've heard today please support us by buying our film at www.cutdocumentary dot com.